everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, which is a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today my guest is Paul Florence, which is a hilarious coincidence because last night I interviewed Katie Clifford. And I mentioned that I was interviewing you today, and she says, oh, that's so funny because Paul and I went to high school, and we were kind of frenemies, but then we became really good <laughs> friends after working in the game. So, Paul, welcome. I'm How good. you doing? Thank you. And actually, it started back in junior high. with I met Katie Clifford probably when we were 11 or 12 years old, so we go way back. Wow, that is way back. That is way back. Yeah. And that's here in uh, Salt Lake, right? Yeah, we're both local Salt Lake kids, uh, both grew up in, in the holiday area. And uh, yeah, I met her at Bonneville Junior High School. That's so amazing. You know, it's funny. She said, yeah, you guys went to Cottonwood and I went to Cyprus. And Cyprus is about as west side as you can get until you go over into Tooele <laughs> County. And I remember thinking that anybody that went past Granger High School was an East Sider. You know, <laughs> like, uh, we're total snobs. But I, I am so grateful that you have allowed me to speak with you the illustrious people of the East side. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time and speaking with a humble West sider. <laughs> it's great to be here. You know, it's good. We can really break down some of those barriers here. I know that's what this COVID is doing, right? right? It allows us to connect in new ways. And we take, we tear down those old walls. And that's what the Olympics is all about too. Absolutely. Now, where are you joining us from? I'm in Colorado Springs. I'm actually uh, in my laundry room because we've been remote here for, I think going on six weeks. So uh, doing a lot of video conference calls as we are still working, but went remote a while ago. From the laundry room. From the laundry room. Yes. Slash kids art room. So multi-purpose area. Yes, very much so. All right. Do you need to take a load out of the wash and put it in the dryer? I may just listen for a buzz or a ding. And that probably means that it's ready to put the darks in. Okay. We, we won't try to keep you from laundry duty, but <laughs> uh, what are you doing in Colorado Springs? So I am now with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. So still in the Olympic movement. And I actually started here not that long ago. I moved to Colorado Springs from California last summer, so July of 2019. And what are you doing with the USOPC? So my official title is Senior VP of Strategy and Operations. And um, as you might expect, that was very Tokyo focused. One of my big responsibilities or main responsibilities was overseeing their uh, donor hospitality program, which is uh, where we take... Uh, approximately 11 to 1200 people donors to Tokyo in on various hospitality packages that includes ticket hotels, all the logistical aspects of that. So we were well into that planning process um, with all of our donors when everything when we pressed pause in early March. So that's been one of the big focuses that I've been working on since I got here um, and have been running a team on that since last July. And what is the current state of affairs now that we're all sequestered? We're all not quarantine, but we're we're sheltering in place due to this virus, and the games have been postponed by a year. How's that impacting the USOPC and the particular the work that you're doing? Uh, well, it's impacting us significantly. That you may have seen there was a Wall Street Journal article that uh, was posted yesterday, uh, and basically laying out the fact that we are going through some significant budget cuts, 10 to 20% across the board. And that's because of revenue impact um, for the committee, because much of our revenue comes from sponsors who pay upon 
um, either the beginning or the end of the games, which means that those payments are now postponed by one year. So we're making some austerity, austerity, we're taking some austerity measures here at the committee. And it's probably, it's going to be a little bit of a bumpy ride here probably for the next few weeks. Um, and then from, from our program, obviously we've pressed pause on a lot of our planning for Tokyo and are waiting for answers. Like so many who are involved in Tokyo, waiting to get some of the basics, like the competition schedule and seeing how that will then impact some of our programs. So in a little bit of a holding pattern on that and going through some kind of tougher times as a committee, but I think we're going to get through this and I'm still really optimistic about what, what, what Tokyo is going to be like once we're finally able to gather together as a as a, not only an Olympic community, but a global community. I think it'll be all that much more meaningful. I think so too. It kind of reminds me of the Super Bowl after September 11th and then the games uh, after September 11th. I mean, that was, that was really important for the country. And here with this being a global pandemic, I really see Tokyo 2020. Should it, fingers crossed, be able to come out in uh, the summer of 2021? I really see it as a potentially an amazing moment to bring humanity together. Absolutely. And I keep telling our team that, that the, you know, the Olympic platform is always powerful, but I don't think it'll be ever quite as special or as meaningful as it will be next summer if we can pull this off. Well, we're not here to talk about Tokyo, although it's been fun to kind of catch up on those things. We're here to wind the clock back, go back in time a little bit to the games that occurred 18 years ago, the Salt Lake 2002 games. Paul, what was your journey to Salt Lake? You know, how did you end up joining the committee? Yeah, that's a great story. And I, I love telling this story because it, it changed my life so much. I grew up, um, I was born actually in Denver, but I grew up mostly in Salt Lake, as we were talking about. And, but I grew up an Olympic junkie. I loved, I wanted to be a ski racer and I was never good enough, but I fell in love with the, the Olympics in 1984 watching this upstart out of California who nobody was expecting by the name of Bill Johnson, who came out of nowhere to beat the mighty Swiss and Austrians and win the gold. And I think my parents still have the VHS tape because we recorded it. And I still just vividly remember watching that with my dad and brothers. And it was just, it was one of those memories you just can't forget. And you just will always look back on. And, and I just loved the Olympics from that moment on. And I think I still have all the recordings from 84 and 88 and 92. And then when they started staggering it, um, with Lillehammer in 94. And, um, so when the Olympics were coming to my hometown, I felt like I had to be involved. And I was, I had just graduated from college. Um, and I was actually had been living with my brother who was in Washington, DC. So I'd left Utah for school and then trying to find some work back there. And I, it kind of dawned on me, I have to get back to Salt Lake and work on the Olympics. This is what I want to do. And I was applying for every job online that there was on the website. You probably remember the old Salt Lake 2002 website and I wasn't really getting anywhere. So one day I just had this bright idea to email Mitt Romney and I thought, Hey, you know what, what, what do I have to lose? So I, and I didn't know his email address, but I'd kind of, by that point learned that the default email was first name dot last name at Salt Lake 2002. So I, I just whipped off an email to Mitt, <laughs> Mitt.Romney at Salt Lake 2002. And I attached my resume and I said, Hey, you know, it was a pretty informal cover letter, but I said, I, I'm a hometown kid. I would love to work in the games. I'll do anything. And I sent it off and I didn't really think much of it. And a couple of days later, I got a call from the head of HR. And I don't remember 
the, the woman's name, you may remember Christian, but the head of HR called me and said, Hey, I got your resume from MIT, <laughs> which is a hilarious story because there's no way looking back, MIT read that email or ever saw it, but I'm sure his EA who was managing his inbox saw the email, saw that it was a resume and just did kind of an auto forward to the head of HR. But when the head of HR got an email from MIT's inbox felt like, Oh, I better respond to this. Um, so me just being kind of this punk kid from Salt Lake somehow was being directed via MIT's inbox at head of HR. So she gave me a call and said, Hey, I got your resume from MIT. What do you want to do, um, here at Slock? And I remember just kind of stumbling over some words on the phone and basically saying, well, whatever, I'll do anything. And she said, well, tell you what, look on the website, find a job that you're interested in. And if you, when you, when you do call me back and we'll get you an interview. And I was thrilled because I felt like if I can just get into an interview, I'll talk my way into this thing. And so sure enough, I think a two, it was probably two or three days, maybe a week later, I saw a job posted with international client services, which was an area I was particularly interested in. And I called her back and said, Hey, this is the one I'm interested in. They set me up with an interview and I went in and, um, I remember I interviewed with Maureen Sweeney, who I think you've already spoken to on the, on another episode of this. And, um, I talked my way into the job and started a couple of weeks later and that's how I ended up at Slock. That is so amazing. Was it Tammy Bevan? Yeah. Who was the HR person? It it was, it was Tammy. I I had forgotten that name. And I've since told that story. There's no way Mitt remembers it, but I actually talked to Fraser about it. Um, probably a couple of years ago. And he loved that story. He's like, I got to tell Mitt. <laughs> so it's just, and I always tell people, Hey, you just be scrappy. You, there's no reason to, you know, don't hold back when you're looking for work, just try something and, and, you know, be creative. Something will, something will work out. Well, the risk definitely paid off for you because uh, you got in there and then you're able to do a lot of things there. And then after, yeah. uh, but what exactly was your responsibility? You mentioned you interview with Maureen. So you're in that yep. international relations area. What was yes. your, what was your role there in international relations? So I was a venue manager within the international relations team. And my, the first venue that I was assigned to was Rice Eccles stadium, which was opening and closing ceremonies. So from an international relations standpoint, that meant basically working with the Olympic family. So any official guest that was coming to opening or closing ceremony, I worked with that delegation. And so we worked with the White House, I worked with the IOC, we worked with all the heads of state and their delegations as they were planning to come in. And it just was this huge eye opener for me, just this, this kind of um, entry into a totally different world. And I was just, (laughs) I was hooked, I loved it. It was just the most fascinating education um, for someone who loves the Olympics and loves the international aspect of it. And um, it was great. But again, opening ceremony and closing, obviously, are just the first and last day of the games. And we had some staff changes. And so during the process, I was also given um, Snow Basin as a venue. And so I ended up covering um, that venue as well, which was as a skier, I just loved being up there for that. And that was incredible. And then partway through the games, uh, there were some changes in terms of our the the management at the Metals Plaza. So I picked up that venue about you know probably four or five days into the games and was doing that at night. So I was I was young and single at the time, and I was more than happy to just cover as many venues as they assigned to me. And it was great because I got a really broad exposure into all the different 
both competition and non-competition venues and just had a blast every single day. That's awesome. If, if you don't mind, Jess Christiansen, um, I interviewed Jess last week and her interview just went up yesterday. So people can go now and they can listen to Jess and Jess mentioned you because she was the HR person there at Rice Eccles. And she mentioned, as I asked her the question, you know, well, what were some of the people that you really enjoyed working with that were really uh, inspiring or you looked up to or really fun to be around? And she mentioned you and Paul Foster uh, as, <laughs> as two individuals there. So we'll give props to Jess. Uh, but I'll take that question. I'll turn it around to you. So uh, you've mentioned a few people already, Maureen, and you got to meet a lot of amazing people from all parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of great people working on that team. The Salt Lake 2002 staff, I thought, um, was, a, you know, it was just filled with people that were wonderful to work with. Who were some of those people that you worked with that you found particularly inspiring or mentors or super funny, you know, just people that you really enjoyed being around? Yeah, it's, it's amazing to look back because I was so young in my career and I, I was just kind of like a sponge at that point and, you know, making all sorts of mistakes, but also really it was such a great opportunity to learn from so many people with incredible experience from around the world. I loved Maureen was, is like, is a dear friend of mine to this day and was one of the best bosses ever. And I loved working on her team and we just had such a fun team with, with people from around the world. You mentioned Paul Foster. There was a third Paul F uh, in addition to Paul Foster and I, uh, a guy by the name of Paul Freudensprung who from Austria, who is just an incredible guy. And, another fun member of our team. And we just, we just had a blast as a team and I learned so much from them, but not only our team, but throughout at, at multiple venues, people like Darren Hughes, who I know you've already spoken to, who's probably got a great episode. I need to listen to Alan Shaw. Um, up at the, up at the, at Rice Eccles, we had a great, uh, manager in Ron Cameron and Ralph Ord, who I just thought was one of the coolest guys ever. And and then when I started working up at Snow Basin with some of those folks, uh, there, it was just, I felt like everywhere I went, I just was learning new, it was just a new eye opener for me. And um, it was just, I, the list could go on and on, but there, I still count to this day so many dear friends that I worked with at SLOC who taught me a lot. But then that also opened up the door to all the people that I met at the International Olympic Committee and and throughout the movement. It was just everywhere I turned, there were, there were people to learn from and people who were really, you know, generous with their time and in teaching, you know, kind of a young punk kid, how the world worked. And that, (laughs) that really made a huge difference for me. You know, it's interesting when we have these kinds of conversations with people that are outside the movement, they think that working on the games is just the coolest thing ever. And I agree with them. It is wonderful to work on the Olympic Games, but it's not easy. You know, this work is hard and delivering the Salt Lake Games was a huge amount of fun, but it was difficult at times. As you look back at your tenure there in Salt Lake, uh, what were some of the big challenges that you faced and how did you end up resolving some of those challenges? Yeah, there were a few challenges. One, as I mentioned this earlier, but just being new. I mean, this was my new, kind of my first real job and kind of understanding what that meant in a really high pressure environment, um, was, was kind of a regular challenge for me. And I think the team allowed me to probably make some stumbles and, and kind of passed some things off as useful inexperience that I am really grateful that I got other chances on. And, and you mentioned this earlier, but you remember nine 11 came 
which is, you know, of course, everyone remembers. I remember it also because it's my birthday. And it was just the strangest day as we were heading in for another work day at Flock. And I got a call from Maureen about, hey, we're not, you know, just stay home because we're not coming in today. But that created just when it came on the calendar as we were really in that final sprint to the games was an incredible challenge for, for I think, for every functional area across the organization. And we all had to kind of rally to, to adjust. And that one really stood out to me too. And I think I just remember so many of our leaders just responding to that occasion in an incredible way. And it was, I'm actually taking lessons from that now as we're dealing with the, the current COVID crisis and what it means in terms of, you know, being a leader and, 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 um, kind of adjusting to curveballs along the way. It, there are a lot of parallels there. You know, it's interesting, the nine 11 thing, you're right. The leaders really did help us get out of that, but I mean, that, that ended up changing operations substantially, particularly for the ceremonies, because the ceremonies was probably the most risky event <laughs> in all of the games because you everybody's there. All the athletes are there. All the dignitaries are there. What was that like preparing for and delivering the ceremonies post 9-11? Yeah, I remember that just changed overnight. Once we were back on track and working again, suddenly the security apparatus just became everything um, in terms of, and, and of course, every game since then has been changed as a result, but that was the first one and it came so soon after, but suddenly security became kind of the driver of so many things. And it, we had to then kind of integrate all that into the planning process, which was process, which was well underway by that point. And it was, inc- it was incredible to see that happen and how well people rallied and worked together to make that happen. Um, obviously at the opening and closing ceremony, we had all these heads of state coming in. I remember working with the secret service on that and, and, and it was just incredible to see that come together in a short amount of time. It was, it was a really, um, collaborative effort, but it definitely changed the way that ceremonies were done for sure. Well, 9-11 9-11 was a dark day, and it really made everybody serious about preparing for the games. But I don't want to get too serious on our podcast here, so I want to lighten the mood a little bit. As you look back at your time there in Salt Lake, what were some of the really just super funny experiences or stories? You know, when you, think, you look back on them, I can't believe that happened, or, or that was just so hilarious. Yeah, that, <laughs> there were so many thinking back to Salt Lake. And again, being my first games that I still kind of scratch my head and laugh about opening ceremony was incredible. I remember, um, <laughs> we were, can we gathered all the heads of state in the, in the, the reception area at Rice Eccles for a photo. And I remember the photographer got up on this ladder that I was worried was going to tip over. So I went and stabilized it and grabbed it. So because it looked like it was about to topple over, which would have been obviously a disaster. And then, um, the first lady, well, um, the Bushes were there, obviously, as the head of state, George W. Bush at the time. And he, um, Laura Bush had a little, um, you know, we had tags for where they were supposed to stand. I remember she got one stuck on the bottom of her shoe. <laughs> and Paul Foster and I were running after her, trying to take it off so she wouldn't be tracking it around the rest of the night. But that kind of set the tone for the night. And then after the, if you remember, George W. Bush popped up in the athlete section uh, and talked on a cell phone to somebody's parents, which was just an awesome bit of a spontaneous stagecraft. And then after the fact, he came down through the 
kind of the under, you know, the bowels of the stadium as he headed off to the motorcade. And a few of us had the opportunity to line up and, and meet him and which was pretty cool. Um, to, you know, meet the president coming out of opening ceremonies. And I remember, and I still have the photo, it's me and Michelle Thornberry and a couple other people. And I'm wearing my mountain shadow vest and I've got my headset still on. And, um, I still have the picture. And, and I remember he said to me, cool fireworks, huh? <laughs> and, I was, and I remember thinking, yeah, those were really cool fireworks. And I didn't even know what to say. I just kind of had this big goofy grin on my face, but, um, that night was incredible. And then I, re- I remember over at, um, at metals Plaza one time when I was, you know, they had these great bands every night that, that came to Metals Plaza. And I remember one night the band was, I think it was Train. Uh, and the lead singer was kind of a shorter guy. And I was running around up near the stage trying to get some um, some guests up to the Olympic family stands. And I was taking a shortcut back through somewhere. And in, in the meantime, I wasn't really paying attention to the show, but the lead singer had jumped off the stage and was coming down into the crowd. And I literally ran smack, <laughs> smack into him as he was trying to work the crowd. And I just felt like such an idiot, but it was just, I felt like stuff like that was happening all the time. Just Did you look at him and say, I'm sorry, sir, but if you had been a little taller, I would have seen you. <laughs> I did not. I should have said that at the time. I did. I should have asked for his accreditation too, which would have been a, you know, the classic Olympic joke. But uh, I felt like things like that were happening every day in Salt Lake. And they just became normal. I, I love the Laura Bush has a sticker on her shoe. Yeah, I was just thinking. I want it would, it would be just so appropriate if George W. Bush had toilet paper kind of out of the back of his pants or something. You're like, sir, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that would have been fitting. anyway. Uh, great stories. Any other fun or interesting stories that you want to share? I think those are some of the highlights. I just remember being totally exhausted. And, but just showing up to, to different, to cover, you know, to, to my venues and being, and not even caring how tired, just kind of pushing through it, you know, going up to snow base and that drive up from Salt Lake, um, in, it, in the, you know, in the pre-dawn hours, there was always this little McDonald's I would stop at because I remember it was open for breakfast and I'd do the drive through and then drive up to snow base and, and get there super early uh, into, into our area, the Olympic family lounge. And sometimes I would even take a little nap back in our office. But by the time our folks started showing up, I was ready to go. And, um, always worried that some of our guests, whether it was Juan, Juan Antonio Samaranch, who was the honorary president at the time, I remember he came up one time and I was so nervous that he was going to slip on the ice. So I went out and gave him an arm and, and walked him up to our stands and, and another very short person in real life. And just these surprises of seeing all these people in real life that were heroes of mine, you know, Jean-Claude Keeley and some of these other skiers and athletes and who were just, you'd have conversations with everywhere you went. And that was just one of the coolest things I I just couldn't believe that about the Olympics and having those interactions every single day. And it sounds to me like that experience hooked you. Oh, it totally hooked me. Yeah. That was a Salt Lake was, yeah, I I was an Olympic junkie as a kid, but then working in Salt Lake, that was, I was totally hooked. And I um, left Salt Lake and went back to graduate school and, and started down doing other things, but I could never get away from the Olympics. And I've stayed in ever since. And I, that's where my heart was from, you know, 2001 and, and still is, and it's been incredible. So you've gone and done other things, but you've also uh, remained tethered to the games in some respects. I asked this of a lot of people, what was the legacy of the games for you, both personally and professionally? That's a great question. I personally, 
yes, it got me hooked on the games. Tokyo will be my 10th Olympics. Um, with Salt Lake was that first one that really, it changed my life. And I don't mean that. Um, I don't take that. I don't say that lightly in that it, it really did kind of change the trajectory I was on and also open my eyes to just a totally different career path. And as I look back on Salt Lake, and I think about this too, because I know Salt Lake is working on hosting again, which I would just, I would be so thrilled if that happened because it, it was so meaningful to the community too. Just as someone who grew up there and is a hometown kid who was very outdoorsy and loved the ski, always loved the skiing and just those aspects of being in Utah. And then to be able to showcase that to the world, not only meant to, a lot to me as a, um, you know, as someone who's a, a big Olympic fan, but everyone in Salt Lake was so enthusiastic about that. I remember my, um, you know, my grandmother was a volunteer and she just recently passed away, but she still had this incredible pin collection. She was a volunteer at one of the distribution centers. And until the day she died, she wore one of those floor length marker jackets that, <laughs> that she somehow got as a volunteer, not the official volunteer jacket, but because she worked at the distribution center and she was so proud of that thing. And I think everybody involved, whether you were working on it, like we were, or you just were a volunteer or you went or you just saw it in your hometown. We, it was just this, it's this point of pride for anyone who has a Utah, a Salt Lake or Utah connection and, and was a part of it in any way back in 2002. And to this day, the games remain really, really popular here in Salt Lake City and in the state of Utah. And I think they would be a perfect place to host the games again. But this podcast is not an advertisement for those games, although I would, for me personally, I would think those uh, games in 2030 or 2034 would be a, a fitting capstone. At the outset, I gave you three assignments, and the first assignment had to do with music. Yeah. Is there a song or a couple of songs that as you hear them today... You may not even want to listen to them, but it might come on when you're shopping for groceries at Smith's or something. <laughs> you, you're, you're walking through the store and you hear this song. You're like, oh, man, Solly 2002. I remember exactly where I was when I heard that. Or I used to listen to that song in my car all the time. Is there a particular song that really resonated with you? I don't know if there's a song, but I during that period, I loved um, there was a band called Cake and uh, they played a they did a private concert in the athlete village the night of closing ceremony which i'd already liked them but and was pretty into them at the time but the fact that they then played this private concert at after the closing ceremony in the village and i was there was like the perfect capstone to my olympic experience and so every time i hear a cake song i i just go back to that night which was just so much fun and it, it was kind of that band, I remember I lived in a, in a kind of a bachelor pad up in the avenues with four of my high school buddies uh, at the time of the Salt Lake Games. And there was kind of this, that was just the cake was kind of the soundtrack of our, of that house. And so that was just like the perfect fitting um, end to the games for me to see those guys. And there were probably a, a hundred people standing there for that show. And it just felt like the perfect finish to the Salt Lake Games for me. You're not the first person to say cake <laughs> because you're, Friend Maureen also said cake. Maureen, for Maureen that was in the concert with me. She, exactly. She yes. was there with you. So she nominated a cake song. Oh, short, perfect. She nominated the song Short Skirt, Long Jacket. Yes. Okay. So Anything from that I album, will, I, I, will pick, go up I will pick another cake song and we'll perfect. put it on our 
Spotify playlist. So all the songs that everybody mentions, I'm putting on this playlist on Spotify called Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective. So anybody can go on Spotify, they can just search for this playlist. And you see all the songs uh, that are on there that people nominated for Salt Lake 2002. And so we'll put cake on there. Great. Speaking of cake, that's my next question. It's the food question. Particular restaurant or place that you like to go to eat, either breakfast, lunch, or dinner. You also already mentioned McDonald's going through the drive-thru on your way up to the games. (laughs) Um, But any other places that you like to go when you were working there at Slock? Yeah, and probably most of them are gone. I loved it. Whenever I was up in Park City, because I also covered some of the, the venues up there, the Mountain Air Cafe, which I think is now Squatters, um, as you're coming into town. I loved going there. Um, there was also a kind of a chain at the time called Gurus, and I think it's gone. I'm pretty sure it's gone now because I haven't seen it in Salt Lake for years. But there was one on South Temple near where I lived. There was another one on kind of the ninth and ninth area. And we used to go there all the time for some reason. And it felt like it was a a little bit, a kind of a slight step up from fast food. And I felt a little bit more sophisticated as a 20 something punk kid. Um, but gurus was another one. Gandolfo's I would go for sandwiches. That was kind of my go-to on main street for lunch out of, uh, out of headquarters, but nothing. Yeah, certainly nothing for the sophisticated, sophisticated palate, uh, come from my recommendation list. Oh, that's perfect. And I'm sorry that so many of the places are gone. You know, uh, we were just talking the other day about the place. You know, there was a little row of restaurants that were right behind the building there, the Wells Fargo building. The, yes. There's some gone and the Globe Cafe gone. And, the Globe. Yeah. Yeah. Globe you know, a lot of great. those places. But uh, Dan Merkley, who I also did the podcast with, he mentioned Gandalfos as well. So, we'll, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll I can put, see Dan picking Gandalfos. Yeah. For the restaurants that are still around, I have a map and I'm putting all the little restaurants that everybody's recommending. Uh, well, a guilty map, pleasure so. that's probably still there was the Taco Time out on, I think, like 8th South and Maine. And I would always go get the Bavarian cream empanadas late at night. That was like my <laughs> get a good sugar fix. But Taco I think time. that one is still there. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Taco Time. Perfect. Perfect. I'm shameless. Taco Time. Hey man, I'm I'm there with you. The tater tots, which are called oh, Mexi tots. Mexi tots. I could use some. Why right now. they sell that at a Mexican place? I don't know, but I like them. But don't ever stop. Okay, last question for you. As you look back at all your experiences there in Salt Lake, uh, is there one moment that you find that is just so inspiring? It's the quintessential goosebump moment. The one that you, you just look back on and think, man, I'm I was so grateful that I had that experience. Yeah. And I think I had so many of those, which was why I'm even more grateful for what Salt Lake meant to me. Um, But one of the ones that always stands out to me was that opening ceremony. And it was the moment when they brought out the flag from the World Trade Center, the 9-11 flag. And they brought, they, they basically, I think athletes carried it across the field of play at Rice-Eccles Stadium. Well, the two presidents, so President Bush and Jacques Rogue, who I ended up becoming very close with over the last few years um, and worked for him at many games. But I remember watching, and they were standing there as the flag was carried across the field of play, and the stadium was completely silent. I mean, there was not a single sound at all as everybody watched this flag come across. And I remember having this thought, I kind of had this out of body experience as I pictured 
hundreds of millions, probably over a billion people watching this moment on TV, which just felt like such a powerful healing moment, but also just a, 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 a moment of togetherness after 9-11. And to me, that has always encapsulated what the Olympic experience is for me. It is, it is much more than a sporting event. It's a global gathering. And I'm a true believer in that in the Olympic platform because of experiences like that. And none have ever been more powerful than that night in Salt Lake. Well, that's a fitting way to end our podcast with that beautiful memory. Hopefully, as we mentioned at the beginning, Tokyo 2020 will also serve as another point where humanity comes together and celebrates what we are and not what we fear. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Christian. I hope that I hope that it can be that for the world because we certainly need it right now. Indeed. Indeed. Well, Paul, thank you so much uh, for taking the time out of doing your laundry to come and speak with me. If people want to reconnect with you that you work with in Salt Lake, um, how might they find you on social media or however? Yeah, I'm not on Facebook. I deleted my Facebook page uh, account, um, but I you can email me. That's probably the easiest way. And, and my email address, I'm happy to share, paulflorence at gmail.com. All right, perfect. And, or find me on LinkedIn. I'm on there too. But in terms of social media, I have a pretty light footprint. Me too. I haven't done Facebook for a long, long time. But then I spoke with Natalie Moldover last week and she said, you know, you really need to get this podcast on the Facebook group because there's a Slock staff, former Slock staff group. I said, okay. So I got back on and I put the podcast on there. Yeah. Thank you so much again, Paul. I really appreciate the time. And uh, for the listeners of the podcast, please like and subscribe. Thanks, Christian. 